Welcome. 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 Welcome to the Dirk Pullman Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome to the Dirk Pullman Show from Berlin, Germany. Um, this time, not really, I'm in Japan. And my guest is Karl Ja, um, a treasure trove of information. And uh, I'm really happy that he's willing to do a talk with me. I feel a little bit uninformed in comparison with him. His topic is uh, China. And maybe you introduce yourself a little bit, Carl, to the audience, what you do on the Internet, uh, what your kind of work, uh, your transmission is. Uh, hi, Dirk. Uh, long time no see. And thank you again for inviting me to your show. I am Carl Za, the host of the Silk and Steel podcast, focusing on China and surrounding regions, history, politics, and culture. Yeah, let's get straight into a topic that we have discussed when we met each other uh, a few days ago, <laughs> long time no see. Um, that was Taiwan. Um, and uh, you had a, uh, a quote for the beginning uh, when we were discussing why Taiwan is such an important issue and like a sore point in the relationship between USA uh, and China, and it could become the center point of a conflict. It is already a conflict, but it could lead to a war. So why? what is uh, the point with uh, Taiwan? Why uh, is Taiwan picked as a, as a starting point for a confrontation? Okay, so people by now have probably understood that Ukraine is an emotional issue for Russians. So in the similar vein, Taiwan is a very hot emotional issue for the Chinese. You know, Chinese can relax about many, many things, but Taiwan is one of the few things that Chinese cannot be relaxed about. Uh, I mean, the, the Chinese red line has been very clear from the beginning. Taiwan ever declare formal independence, then that would be the ground for war. And this is a fact that's well understood in the United States. And I think this is why we're seeing increasing provocation by the U.S. military around South China Sea and East China Sea because they know where China's red line is. And the hope is to push China into uh, shooting first. And then U.S. can come down with its overwhelming military um, and put a stop to the rise of China. That That's the thinking in the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. So um, you consider the <clears throat> the conflict in Ukraine uh, and on a similar uh, as a similar show of uh, of force. So it was uh, pushing Russia into a situation where, well, let's say uh, the war could have been prevented, but there was really no interest to prevent the war from the uh, especially U.S. and Great Britain side, uh, NATO to a degree also, but NATO is a much more diverse thing than uh, the Anglo-Saxon alliance. So you think it's similar uh, to um, to the situation where Russia drew red lines and each time the red line was drawn, somebody stepped on it. Uh, I think I would like to remind the listeners to several things that were that are not widely reported and i wondered why i um i translated the two letters that were written as response to the russian uh letter to the united states and uh foreign uh, foreign ministry department and also to nato and uh, the answers were um they were quite interesting in terms that united states answered that 
uh, they would go for bilateral contracts uh, where they could station maybe also nuclear weapons in the vicinity of Russia, which meant they were talking about Poland and Romania, and also that there could be uh, uh, contracts with Ukraine on that. So that was clearly what Russia was all about, that uh, nobody would be getting close to them in a way that they're only three or four minutes uh, until a, a rocket fired there would reach Moscow, which is uh, so dangerous in itself that it's, uh, I wonder who is coming up with ideas like that. That's only valid if you have a first strike. And also, Zelensky said on the Munich Security Conference that he's contemplating to become a nuclear, that Ukraine is contemplating to become a nuclear power again, which they were. They had a lot of weapons they uh, handed over to the Russians uh, when Ukraine was established. That was a precondition um, for that. So, uh, and when he did it, there were standing ovations in the audience. So these two things are really uh, important. And also that the United States reestablished uh, the unit that had the Pershing II in Europe. Um, they reestablished that unit in Germany and, and Mainz Finden, uh, Mainz Castell. Um, uh, so it was reestablished and it's supposed to get uh, hyp uh, hypersonic weapons as soon as they are functioning. They are developing them. They're not in the same stage as uh, Russia and China is. They both have these weapons already. So to get back uh, after my short comment here to the uh, to the original question, you consider the situation in Ukraine and uh, the upcoming situation in Taiwan the same, that it is a provocation looking for a way to start a conflict to make a China act first in a military term. Correct? Is that correct? Or, or am I overemphasizing? It's very similar from the United States perspective. Uh, of course, from the Chinese perspective, it looks quite different because uh, from Chinese perspective, Ukraine is actually a sovereign country. Whereas Taiwan is not. There's no countries in the United Nations, uh, um, no countries recognize Taiwan as its own independent nation. Even the 12 mm -hmm. countries that recognize Taiwan diplomatically today, they have diplomatic relations uh, with the Republic of China, which still nominally claims to be the sole government of all of China, including Taiwan. And so this is a this may be like splitting hair for Western audience, but this is a very important uh, sticking point for Beijing. You know, to the the idea the one China there, the, in fact, one China principle lays the foundation for the the Sino-American relationship ever since the Nixon visit. I mean, it was during the Nixon visit that, that President Nixon signed the Shanghai communique with then Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai, which declared that U.S. recognized the Chinese on the both sides of the Taiwan Strait, recognized that Taiwan is part of China, and there's only one China. And, and that, <clears throat> right now, what U.S. is doing is walking back from that declaration, uh, you know, of course, now all the legalistic uh, Washington types, they claim, oh, the Shanghai communique is just a declaration. It has no uh, it's not a binding treaty, you know, but they know full well what that means. You know, they know full well where Chinese red line is and they're willing to get in pretty close 
uh, the the atmosphere. If you asked me five years ago, Dirk, you know, if there's a possibility of a hot war between China and U.S., I would say you're crazy. Uh, you know, it's, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. But if you ask me today, I am not so sure. I mean, just to give you an example, how heated the rhetoric about going to war with China is in the United States. Just a few days ago, the U.S. General Milley, the chairman of the Joint uh, Chief of Staffs, when on an interview with Defense One, when he said, okay, we need to cool it down with the rhetoric about going to war with China. I mean, when Pentagon has to step in and tell the congressman to, you know, to step back, to calm down and not talking about war with China, you can see how bad things have gotten inside United States. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I noticed uh, that in an interview on German, uh, for German uh, TV, the deputy chief editor of uh, uh, the German TV station ZDF, which is one of the huge uh, um, public networks in, in Germany, uh, he had an interview with General Ben Hodges, who, by the way, also was there when Zelensky uh, declared at the Munich Security Conference that he wants Ukraine to become a nuclear power again nuclear weapons power uh he uh in that interview that was 2019 uh it was about the discussions of germany paying for the american basis uh in in, in germany it's in, in effect it's extraterritorial country uh, the American bases are not governed by Germany. There's uh, up to jurisdiction and police. Uh, they are American. So uh, uh, Trump was pushing uh, the businessman that he always showed to be was pushing that Germany would pay fully for their bases uh, that uh, the Americans have on German soil. And Ben Hodges said uh, he shouldn't do that because we will need uh, the Europeans and also Germany for the upcoming inevitable war with china uh, and hodges was commander of american army europe so that was already in 2019 and you also recently had a statement from uh, um, that is uh, general minihan i think is his name uh, chief of the transport command who gave a lot of very strange uh, comments and one of them is uh, uh, that his gut feeling is there will be a war with china uh, uh until 2025 <laughs> and yeah. said that a war uh, uh if you kill your enemy in the war it improves your marriage and uh, uh it uh, things like that so very strange very aggressive very uh I've, i would call that sick comments uh, uh on that this is the situation uh, the statement that you just mentioned came in uh came in so there's a lot of talk of being uh of a war that's uh, inevitable already that early. And then, of course, the question is um, why? But I would like to get to one thing first, because you mentioned that I recall that from my from my readings that uh, 1972, what you just mentioned, that was a precondition for the Sino-American realignment, which happened uh, along the Sino-Soviet split. That was a precondition for that. <laughs> Um, and in America, uh, the United States uh, has repeatedly uh, assured China that the one China question is not in question. That 78, a spokesperson from the Chinese foreign ministry did that recently, reminded them how often they have. Uh, and now, right now, 
they're moving away from that and acting as if uh, they have always been for Taiwan independence. Yeah, so there must be a reason <laughs> why the uh, the attitude changed so drastically that they take a conflict into their view. And um, so what is the reason that the policy changed? What do you think? Is there a single reason? Is it a development? Why? Um, it's actually the reason is actually quite complex. There are many reasons for this change. Um, one reason is domestic U.S. politics, uh, because as you know, the U.S. industrial base has been hollow out ever since 1970s as uh, U.S. industrialists moved their factories overseas. And eventually when China opened up, they moved them to China. So it's right now the U.S. middle class is in crisis. The economy is stagnating and the youth do not see much future. And at this juncture, the politicians, you know, rather than take responsibility and uh, focus on how to make U U.S. a better place, it's much politically expedient for them to point fingers at a foreign enemy. This, in this case, China, you know, the the slogan in U.S. is a Chinese stole our jobs, Chinese stole our our manufacturing cap capability, which is completely nonsense. You know, China did not come to United States and physically stole U.S. job. It's the U.S. industrialists, the capitalists. They decided they're going to make more money in China by exploiting the cheap labors over there, uh, doing a global labor arbitrage. And then they made the decision to move the factory over there. But guess what? It, you cannot say that in the U.S. mainstream media because most of the U.S. mainstream media has been bought up by those same American industrialists who moved their factories to China. So we cannot blame the capitalists. <laughs> and so we must blame China. You know, only, only thing China did is they built their infrastructure that they, they managed to educate their workforce, you know, from a largely Ill illiterate agrarian, um, population that was pre, pre the communist revolution in 1949 to today, a very highly disciplined, highly educated workforce, and they have the world-class infrastructure to support it. Uh, I mean, why couldn't the United States do that at home? You know, mm -hmm. oh, the answer is obvious, but because we need to go to war with China, so we need to spend over trillion dollars on defense budget and give all the taxpayer money to companies like Raytheon, Mar uh, Raytheon Lockheed Martin, Boeing, etc. Uh, I mean, I, U.S. is a very strange country, Dirk. I, I only come to realize that after i left united states you know while i was inside us i you know it, i'm like the frog being boiled uh slowly i didn't realize what's going on but once i'm outside the united states looking uh from looking from outside us is truly a very very strange country mm. yeah and it's also i'd like to add uh we have to take into account that this uh, that the economy now that everything uh, that is uh, cars, refrigerators, stereo sets, TVs, whatever, is not produced in the United States anymore. Uh, the big thing is the the weapons industry. So if you have a war, uh, and that uh, is um, reminds a little bit uh, of the situation in World War One, where which was decided by uh, USA getting into the war in Europe, which was in a lockdown situation, and nobody could uh, could really win it. And uh, USA was the the superpower at that time, not a superpower, but it was the superpower 
from there on, or uh, let's say a major, uh, um, a major power, uh, that was the possibility. Uh, it's a possibility to, for example, like now Germany will pay uh, 100 billion uh, euros will invest in weapons and guess where they buy them. It's not really uh, German companies. It is a lot of that weaponry comes from the United States. So if there's a war, it means big business for the American economy. Um, and that is about the only economy they have besides uh, software industry uh, uh, in a way. But that leads to another point that we will come to the computer chips. But uh, first, let's have uh, we get to the question of the big decoupling. That's where I'm heading for. Um, but first, the advertisements. Dirk Pullman, Dirk Pullman on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Back to Carl Jar. So we were talking about why the uh, situation where there is a war or the ramp up for war is so advantageous to the United States. And you mentioned that the industry for the for capitalist reasons, really, because there was cheap labor available in China, industry went over there, and now there's talk about uh, China stealing the jobs. And I would like to remind you that there was also the China virus, as uh, Trump has called that, uh, where China is responsible for everything that, that happens to the United States. And there is a, a term that I first read about two of, two years ago, I think, in American foreign policy papers, the big decoupling. The idea was after the wall came down in 89 and the Soviet, the demise of the Soviet Union, that uh, Russia would be taken over by the capitalist system, by the world capitalist financial system. So it would become an integral part and that would solidify the, yeah, really the, the possibility for United States uh, to, um, uh, to, project power into that area, not only by military terms, but rather by the economy. And they also hope the same for China. That is when uh, students carried the Statue of Liberty uh, in, in uh, Tiananmen place and the so-called massacre was taking place there. Maybe we get into that because uh, that is really um, the start there was obviously the the hope that with the uh, the use of capitalism, as the leading governmental or economic principle in China, that China would become part of the American empire. Would you agree or am I uh, overstating here? I I think this is you. This is often been said in the U.S. mainstream media, but I think part of it is really an excuse because the U.S. capitalists are really chomping at the bits to go into Chinese market, to exploit the vast pool of Chinese labor. But after decades of anti-China, anti-communist propaganda in, inside United States, they have to come up with a plausible reason to sell the idea to the U.S. public. You know, why are we moving those factories to China? Well, we're moving those factories to China to bring China's step closer to, to the American democracy, to integrate into the U.S. system. I don't think, I think most of them don't believe, don't believe it for, mm. you know, for, for a minute. You know, they are just in it for the money and. And it's a fiction they sell to the American public that China will somehow be more like us. That, that's a very particular American conceit. You know, there's a 
movie called the Four Metal Jacket. It was famous movie about Vietnam War. There's a famous scene in the movie when the sergeant says, "Ins." I'm going to paraphrase it to edit out the slur. He said, basically said, okay. "Inside everyone, there's an American dying to get out." I mean, this is the attitude held by many, many American establishment elite. They really think, uh, you know, everyone just to want to be American. Um, but this is also a selling point for their new policy toward China after 1970s. And, and of course, on the Chinese side, they were very clear from the beginning what they plan to do because the Deng Xiaoping strategy has always been leverage the market economy, leverage the capital from the Western uh, countries to develop China, to develop China's own capabilities. You know, China is not going to remain a pool of of vast pool of cheap labor to Western multinationals forever. The, the, the plan from the beginning was to learn from the Western multinationals and know-hows, the expertise, the technology that China could but by itself climb the uh, value chain and, and become a, a developed nation. And this, this plan worked out perfectly for China. This is something that a lot of the Americans don't understand because the you know their media has not been honest with them, and instead, many Americans believe that the only reason China is prosperous today is because they stole American technology. Because there's no way an authoritarian country like China could somehow outcompete the greatest democracy on earth, the United States of America. Right? That's impossible. So they must have cheated. The Chinese, you know, they're they're conniving. Uh, people, the inscrutable Orientals, you know, once again, they stole our thunder, steal our technology. That's how they got ahead. This is, uh, you know, again, the, the American exceptionalism is kind of imbued with uh, inside the American psyche. And, and many people do believe that. Um, and I want to go back to uh, what you said earlier about uh, U.S. stationing troops in, in in Germany and ask the Germans to pay for it. U.S. is actually doing this all across the globe, including uh, in the region surrounding China. They do that in Japan and they do that in uh, Okinawa. The U.S. have a strong military presence in uh in Okinawa and in South Korea. And in all these cases, U.S. asks its vassals client states to pay for them and it's it's quite and, and their servicemen are not answerable to local laws you know this is why the u.s empire is uh contrary to american propaganda at home is not is not so welcome in the places where it touches you know there's actually quite strong anti-american sentiment in okinawa most of the okinawans they want the american american base to to uh to, to get out, move out of their country, but people, uh, people in U.S. probably not even aware of that. Mm. Yeah, and also it doesn't help if they blow up pipelines uh, of their allies. Uh, that doesn't show you that you are a loved uh, friend, but rather that you are a tribute-paying vessel, as uh, Brzezinski has once called that. But uh, I'd like, uh, I'd like from what you said, uh, I was reminded of a quote from Deng Xiaoping who said, socialism does not mean being poor together. Uh, that is one of the misconceptions, I think, because we, uh, we understood uh, communism means the situation of the Eastern Bloc countries, where in the end, maybe 5% maximum of the people in the uh, Communist Party government of Poland believed in their own ideology. 
uh, it's very, very different picture in China because China is so much on the rise where that 60% of the population are now middle class, something that America can only dream of, which is in the decline. Um, I'd like to get to this. Um, and the picture, I wanted to clarify that um, that the idea was uh, when Russia, uh, when the Soviet Union came down and Gorbachev was uh, sent home, they had Yeltsin and they thought that they could take over Russia economically. And um, I mm. think that the plan was similar for China, that by getting into the capitalist style um, economy, it would be possible to govern into these countries and have them as also as kind of vassal states on a different level, rather on the economic level, which did not, to the surprise of everybody, I think, in China had a completely different story. I mean, the Yeltsin years for Russia were the worst they ever encountered. Um, I've been in Russia recently quite some several times and uh, people should know that uh, uh, that Stalin has a higher ranking in the polls in Russia than Yeltsin had. Yeltsin is the complete; it's the the bottom line of uh, of the uh, of the Russian history for for Russians itself. The situation was terrible. I have a friend who is a Russian who explained to me that his teacher at school fainted because of hunger because he wasn't paid for several months and had no money left to buy food. That was the situation that Russia was in, but China uh, has prevailed and it mastered the economy to a degree that is uh, was very much to the surprise of the Western world. So two years ago, they came up with this idea of the big decoupling. They thought getting close to Russia would mean that they uh, close to China would mean that the economy would be the governing factor. And they suddenly had to understand that in terms of competition, there was a competitor suddenly. So in 37 out of 44 fields of high technology, China is now ahead of the United States because United States does not produce, for example, any kind of railway that can be a competition to Chinese railways on the international market. And isn't that really about uh, how to deal with a competitor who is a real competition? Before that, we always heard about free trade and uh, uh, that trade restrictions are bad and they are a sign of a weakness. And now we notice that the weakness is on the American side. Uh, exactly, Dirk. I mean, <clears throat> I think when the U.S. industrialists went to China uh, in 1980s and 1990s, they thought China would remain forever the vast pool of cheap labor for them for to manufacture toys and shoes for the american consumers but that did not happen you know china gradually climbs the value chain just to give an idea how far china has come when i i was born in china in 1976 one month after mao was born so when I grew up in China, died, in 19- died probably died, not born. Oh yeah, <laughs> you I'm were sorry. born after I'm, Mao died. I, yes, yes, yes. I was born one month <laughs> after Mao died. <laughs> Thank you, Turk. And <laughs> so when I was growing up in 1980s China, China was basically uh, just like uh, uh, any other developing country. It was sending raw materials abroad and buying developed industrial goods. So China at that time was an oil exporter. You know, people would not believe it. China exported crude oil to Japan, but China did not have refining capabilities. So you have to import refined uh, uh, oil products, petrochemicals 
into China. So China had to import fer chemical fertilizers, transistor radio. I mean, nothing back then, nothing was made in China. China didn't make its own refrigerator. It didn't make its own TV. Uh, when my dad uh, sent money back from United States where, where he was studying, you know, we were so excited. We finally get to buy like Japanese made television and Japanese made refrigerator, you know, because chi Chinese factory didn't even make, start making refrigerator until 1986. And this, but, but to their surprise, you know, to their surprise, probably most American elite, the China was able to climb that value chain, was able to gain, uh, gain the technology and expertise to build their own industrial base, to build it to where it is today. I mean, it's, it's, it's like not the change, the difference is night and day from the time when I was born and today, you know, in a span of 46 years, it's that this is why there's a high support for the government inside China, because many people have lived through this dramatic transformation. And, and on top of that, the Chinese people also witnessed what happened to uh, in Russia after the Soviet collapse. You know, in 1980, during the 1989 Tiananmen Square protest, I was inside China. I was 13 years old. You know, I participated in the street protests in my hometown of Chongqing. At that time, it wasn't just a protest in the uh, in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. There was protests nationwide, every major cities. Um, you know, a lot of people, and also back in 1980s. Uh, Chinese public is overwhelmingly pro-Western. You know, you, like they really look up to the West, to the U.S. in particular, as the shining beacon on the hill. That all changed. That everything changed uh, um, as 80s gave away to 90s. You know, one thing is they Chinese people saw what happened to Russia in the post-Soviet collapse and they thought, holy crap, you know, we we locked out, <laughs> you know, that could have been us. And and they also saw how the, the Western companies, the, the, the Western powers are more interested in feasting on the carcasses of Soviet Union than really helping the Russian people to develop their economy. Uh, and that gave them gave them increasing appreciation for what Deng Xiaoping did. And so this is this is something that's completely not understood in the West because this is this this you know in the West is we usually have um, you know middle aged uh, uh, um, middle middle aged um, uh, people from the West reporting on China who most of the time don't even speak a speak of Chinese right so there's a very little knowledge actually about China in the West and the vice versa is not true because Chinese people have been learning English, uh, since, since when I was born and, and they, they are very hungry about outside, uh, about knowledge outside of their borders. Um, after the open and reform that started under Deng Xiaoping. So China know more about the West than vice versa. You know, Sun Tzu used to say, you know, know yourself, know your enemy. You will emerge hundred times out of hundred battles. And do not know yourself. Do not know your enemy. You're guaranteed. You're doomed to fail. I mean, right now, U.S. is squarely in the latter camp. I mean, I I don't think most U.S. congressmen really understand how U.S. works. Just from the uh, the talk they just had, the, the, the congressional hearing on TikTok, you know, the, a lot of the American youth who use TikTok 
log into the hearing and find out their congressman barely understand how technology works. <laughs> yeah, it's, I have a British colleague uh, who just sent me an email a few days ago and said the attitude uh, in the United States regarding TikTok, also Huawei, is another example, a company owned by the employees, by the way, which is also not widely known in, in the Western world. Uh, it reminded him uh, of the attitude the Soviet Union had with Western technology when they were lagging behind. They tried to forbid it. And so uh, for the first time, really, uh, we, um, my generation, I'm, I'm somewhat older than you, grew up with the notion that capitalism means being advanced uh, and uh, that a communist, it's not a communist state, it's a socialist state in these terms, but as uh, being in a socialist state is the point was uh, always that they could uh, point to uh, put to the pragmatic side and said, which way, if you have the choice, would you go? And which way, if they have the choice, do the people from East Europe go? They all wanted to go west. And to a degree, that was also true um, that where I got to know it in, for example, in scientific endeavors in the Max Planck Society, if there were students coming, postdocs coming from China to Europe in the in the early 2000s, if they had the chance to get a job uh, in Europe, they would go into, let's say, a pharmaceutical that was biochemistry, a biopharmaceutical company in, in Germany and Switzerland and France and Great Britain. Um, or the United States uh, that was also in high demand. But then in the 2016 already, uh, everybody from China would go home uh, to have this further career because China offered careers that were incredibly much more interesting <laughs> than what they could achieve in, in Europe. And this is the situation that we where we some people, I think, understood that. And but they don't see it as suddenly there is competition is not a value anymore, but it, it's a question of life and death. And that is, um, to, to a degree, I think what the difference is now that this is why they're talking about the big decoupling. Uh, they wanted, uh, they wanted the connection to the Chinese economy to use the lifeblood of that economy for themselves. And now they found out that it's rather the other way around. And now they want to cut all these connections because uh, being in a trade, uh, in an open trade perspective with China now means that you are on a, on the losing streak, which also includes science. Yeah. Because, yeah. uh, most of the patents are now from China. And until some years, it was not the high tech patients, uh, patents, but also that now, as I just mentioned in the high tech areas. So, uh, what, <laughs> what would be your Chinese advice to the United States? How to deal with that? Um, they are obviously, they have a problem. They are not the, uh, the, um, you mentioned that, that is an impression, the shiny city on the hill that Ronald Reagan uh, said when he became president. We want to become the shining city on the hill again. It's obviously to a lot of the people in the developing world and the global south, uh, that shiny, uh, shining city to a large degree has become China's. So how to deal with that? I mean, it's simple. Just do what China did. I mean, it's, it's really not that <laughs> difficult, right? It, you know, you look, look at what China did. They, uh, they educate their, uh, their, uh, they educate their population. They build world class infrastructure 
And they simplify um, a lot of way. They offer a lot of incentive for other businesses to move in and set up shops. I mean, this is not this is not nothing that U.S. or even Western country could not imitate. But we are. So, you know, our elite is not interested in that because they're already our elite. They already have their they're already rich. You know, they, you know, the, the problem is right now, U.S. is run by a bunch of oligarchs and they already made their money and they just want to uh, preserve their uh, uh, status. Right. And so they're, they're not they're not interested in in improving the American infrastructure. They're not interested in improving American education. Both are in shambles right now. And this is one of the reasons U.S. is losing competitive edge versus China. China graduate way more than United States, but you can say, oh, because Chinese population is so huge. Well, then look at Russia. You know, Russia's population is what, like less than half of United States. Yet you, Russia graduate more engineering uh, uh, graduates than United States. What does that say about U.S.? You know, and, and, and at the same time right now, U.S. government is doing exactly opposite. U.S. used to attract talent up from abroad to make up for the you know the lack of uh local talent um and my my dad was one of those you know my dad uh, came to united united states in 1985 he was the first generation of chinese students to study abroad after um the cultural revolution and as you say um most of my dad's classmates they join american companies uh, many gain american citizenship but right around 2000s, many of my dad's classmates all went back to China because in in U.S. they have reached a glass ceiling in the corporate world. Whereas in China, they can be the founders of companies, they can be CEOs, VPs. You know, the, the sky is limit in China. So, so the only reason my dad my dad didn't go back is because he, by by then he was already old <laughs> and, and he was old and comfortable in us so uh, just this is just a, a personal anecdotal stories how china was transformed and one of the reason uh us elite is pushing for decoupling is actually there's a big push coming from the technology sector like the uh one in particular the former google ceo eric schmidt he is uh, uh also google facebook are behind uh the push for banning the TikTok because as you say they cannot compete TikTok is eating the lunch of all the american social media companies uh, and it's taking the globe by storm. And this is something they cannot allow. That That is why uh, Meta, the, 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 the parent company of, of uh, Facebook and Google, they got together, they lobbied the U.S. congressman. And, and thankfully for them, the United States have the best congressman money can buy. So they are lobbying U.S. <laughs> Congress to to ban TikTok. And, and, and you, you know, for people who have watched the TikTok hearings, you can tell these congressmen, have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. They are not the drivers of, uh, you know, of this drive to ban TikTok. They're, they're being paid off, right? They're being paid off. They're just, they're just, uh, you know, the tools because they receive money. So, so they want to, they want to ban TikTok. And, 
And wh- why they want to ban TikTok? Because as you say, um, they can no, the, the American companies can no longer compete with the Chinese talent because mm. the TikTok parent company ByteDance developed a very innovative uh, algorithm, a predictive algorithm, which, you know, it's very good recommendation engine. Um, once you like some, some, um, some very short videos, they will quickly figure out your what you like and, and and supply you more of those content and and in this department um you both youtube instagram they're all falling behind now they're trying to copy the TikTok strategy what really happened is now a lot of the a lot of the content on youtube short videos and instagram are actually TikTok content were lifted by people straight and and and, and uploaded to um to youtube and and instagram which just promote TikTok even more, and, and this is why they're they're pan- in a panic mode. And and another reason, um, er, you know, Eric Eric Schmidt, the former Google CEO, want to get tough with China. He's a major uh, push behind the chip ban, behind the chip sanction that U.S. levy on China. Um, oh, let believed- me interrupt you there. We get okay, to the on. chip ban after the advertisement. Uh, be, I have to drop that in and let's get back to the chip because that's a, uh, that's a major issue. And I would love to talk with you about it. And back to Carl Jha with a most interesting perspective from the, the Chinese side on the conflict between the United States and China. And we were going into the chip war, which is really something of utmost importance. Um, I'd like to remind the the listeners, um, I was uh, really interested to hear that uh, China educates about uh, half of the in amount and total amount, half of the American population as uh, uh, scientific uh, um, uh, people that are into technology, into mathematics, into natural sciences. And the Chinese as have always been, uh, uh, as long as I follow these figures, the nation and the world where the parents spend most money for the education of their children. That is a Chinese value, um, education for the children. The effects we see now, and one of the effects is the chip war, because they're uh, um, there's also a similarity. I'm in Japan right now, and there's a back south story, a comparable story with Japan in the 80s. Maybe we start there, Carl, with uh, with that story. Oh, yes. So uh, many people don't remember now, but back in 1980s, Japan was a leading edge in the semiconductor manufacturing. And it, again, Japanese company was eating uh, U.S. company's lunch. And so at th- that time, there was a Japan panic, very similar to the China panic right now, that people think Japan is going to take over. So what U.S. did is they decide to levy, hun- uh, again, this was uh, I- I- inside United States, a company called Micron. They, uh, they pushed for the U.S. Congress to ban Japanese semiconductor imports. So this led to um, uh, intense negotiation between uh, American and Japanese negotiators. So after 1986, um, Reagan was uh, pushed to impose 100% tariff on Japanese semiconductor input. And this basically halted the Japanese uh, dominance in the semiconductor field because a lot of the um, Japanese semiconductor industry depends on export because unlike China, Japan has only, you know, like over 100, 120 million, 100, 
120 million people. They they depend on the mar- the vast market of U.S. and Europe to sell their goods. And so when the when the U.S. Uh, levy sanctions that halted the, the advance of uh, of the, the the Japanese semiconductor industry, and instead um, U.S. and uh, you, 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 the uh, U.S offsource um different parts of its semiconductor manufacturing to its other client states namely south korea and taiwan so so at the time the taiwan uh uh taiwan semiconductor founder morris chan he he thought saw what happened to japan and he thought okay you know if we can't we can't beat them. We will join them. So Morris Chang was educated in in United States. He he worked with U.S. companies. Um, he knows the in and out of the U.S. semiconductor industry, and he knows there's uh, one sector of the U.S. semiconductor industry that U.S. corporation were not uh, very happy about, and this is the actual manufacturing of the chips. Uh, because you know a lot of the high margin business is in the chip design. And but actually making the chip is very capital intensive because the 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 chip design were getting more and more advanced every year because of Moore's law, right? The, the you can fit you, you can fit more s- stuff on on a, a same amount of semiconductor. So so what happened is every year, almost every year, you need to you need to uh, have new machines that to make the most advanced cutting edge chips. Um, so this is this is a part of the manufacturing that U.S. companies didn't care about because they only care about profits, and this is very um, capital intensive and low margin stuff. So Morris Chan said, "Okay, no problem. I can do that. I can do that for you." And this is the origin of the TSMC Taiwan Semiconductors. They the Morris Chan started the business by taking orders from the different american semiconductor companies to manufacture chips in taiwan by taking on and he had help from the taiwan government uh, you know taiwan government poor uh grant him a very generous uh bank loans to allow him to start and and over time taiwan semiconductor came to uh almost monopolize the the chip manufacturing process so so a lot of the the chip designs are still done in united states but once you have a design you send the design over to taiwan to have them actually make the chip and for years you know in the in the age of globalization all countries over the world were more than happy to buy to have their chips made in taiwan until united states uh this just had under biden administration said no no you can no longer sell your advanced semiconductors to mainland china even though mainland china composed of 60 percent of the market for taiwan semiconductors right huawei was perfectly happy to to have their own uh in-house design chip to be made in taiwan but us is now removing that option you know Taiwan Semiconductor is not even an American company, but because the U.S. control of the financial system, uh, uh, one of the pillar of the U.S. hegemony of the world, the uh, U.S. can say if you have any business dealing with U.S., you know, basically if you tra- have transaction you U.S. dollars, you cannot do business with uh, with China. You cannot sell semiconductors to China, and this is create again. 
uh, a lot of the American strategists are now saying, oh, because this uh, chip shortage, now China will have an incentive to take over Taiwan. I mean, U.S. government def <laughs> U.S. government intentionally created this incentive. Um, this goes back to what we said earlier. It's almost like U.S. is trying to do whatever way possible to push China into a war. And with a, so, so, so right now they are um, coming, not only banning Taiwan from supplying advanced semiconductor chip to China, mainland China has its own indigenous uh, semiconductor manufacturing. Uh, sorry, that's my, my dogs going crazy. And, <laughs> and, but currently, currently China can only manufacture, um, the middle of the line semiconductors, but, but because the Chinese companies are gaining the expertise and particularly from a lot of the employees of the former Taiwan semiconductors, because, you know, China is offering money and bonuses to come work with them. So U.S. government now impose a ban on any American citizens from working with the U.S. with the Chinese semiconductor industry. And on top of that, U.S. also banned import of, um, you know, from anybody who have business dealing with uh, U.S. forbid them from importing Chinese semiconductors. So what, what that means is GM, American car company in China manufacturing GM cars for the Chinese market, they can no longer purchase Chinese semiconductors because of U.S. law. So this artificially created that ship shortage that that happened six months ago, uh, because now you know, Chinese semiconductor industry, which is supply of a, a, a sizable chunks of uh, not the cutting edge semiconductor, but middle of the line semiconductors that could be using cars, for example, now that's been yanked, forcibly yanked out of the market by U.S. government decree. And, and that created a global chip shortage. Um, again, you know, this is this is I, I consider this is a self-owned goal because, you know, this feed, feeds into the the inflation that's going around the world right now right u.s mm -hmm. uh sanction on russia on, on the russian oil and gas that's create another vector for inflation and the, the u.s chip sanction on china is creating another victor mm -hmm. vector on on the inflation and uh, you know the u.s public yeah. uh, go ahead sorry we yeah no we run out of time so <laughs> i'm very sorry to interrupt you here it's most interesting and i think we have to continue with it uh, it's also uh, what you tell is uh, very fresh very new information and it's valuable to understand in which state of affairs we're in right now so thank you carl ja for that and we have to go on with uh, uh, with another round of interviews i guess goodbye thank you dirk bye bye